Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Not Safe for Wonks. I, I, we need an air horn, right? Boop, boop, boop. <laughs> yeah. We are having a party. It's true. Every day is a party. We are celebrating life. Uh, we are celebrating growth. We are here today with Mike Shipley. He's affiliated with the Libertarian Party and the specifically Libertarian Socialist Caucus of the Libertarian Party. I have sort of come full circle. Uh, listeners who are with us regularly will probably know that once upon a time when I first started college, I was a Libertarian, but like the bad kind. And in the last couple of years, I went from being, you know, a shit lib to a libertarian socialist. Uh, and so I am really excited to have Mike here to talk with us about this nascent rise of socialism within the Libertarian Party. I am excited to talk about libertarian socialism. And honestly, I'm just excited to be here. Woohoo! Mike, how are you? I'm fantastic. I'm so grateful to be here. And thank you for that warm introduction. Absolutely. Absolutely. We're super excited. We've had association with a few libertarian socialist figures before, and it's always been a good time. And especially shouts out to Vermin Supreme and uh, shouts out also to our friend. Asher Knuckles is a friend of the show. He ran as a libertarian socialist in Georgia for Congress also, and uh, is somebody that like we were amazed his campaign did better than a lot of people who had 10 times as much money and i think a lot of it came down to the messaging and that's part of why i was personally excited to have you here today because we've had people on to talk about this message before but now like we have somebody who's truly like this is your message and this is what you're organizing around and like what you do is explain it so let's go mike <laughs> All right. Well, first of all, I want to, I'm going to pick up on um, that whole, like the wrong kind of libertarian narrative, because I think that's hilarious. Like there's this joke in the party, what's the difference between, you know, a minarchist, which is a limited government, small government type and an anarchist. And the joke is, you know, about six months and they say, oh, Ron Paul created so many anarchists. And what they're talking about, of course, is ANCAPs. Right. But what, what they're not like really paying attention to is that Ron Paul created a lot of libertarian socialists including people like me the thing is the party is so like suffocatingly right wing that once we drift left the party doesn't retain us well i wasn't able to just like float away as i drifted left because i was the chair of the queer caucus at the time so in 2013 um i was elected chair of that caucus and my job was to figure out how to well it was my volunteer responsibility i shouldn't call it a job <laughs> if only i could get paid for like this year volume of non <laughs> to put up with. But anyway, right. I digress. My job was to figure out like how to make the party more inclusive of its queer members and also how to introduce the party to, you know, queer voters. And when I looked at that problem and like the way that others had done it in the past, what I realized is that like packaging that right-wing narrative and like explaining it at queer voters was the wrong tactic because the problem wasn't them. The problem's not that the general public is too stupid to understand right-wing economics. The problem is that right-wing economics are basically fascist light and that problem is on the party side of the street and so as I started like trying to unpack like what was really going on um, and looking around at different libertarian ideas that existed and looking for inspiration I ran across a think tank called Center for a Stateless Society um, which is mostly mutualist and mutualist ad adjacent left market anarchists and I kind of like I just lit up and I was like oh my gosh this is it like this is the narrative. And so I drifted left. I knew that like the best queer allies are going to come from the bottom left of the quadrant. 
And the Libertarian Party currently is unaware that that's their actual intellectual history. So I'm going to make them aware. And that's kind of how my journey started. Like I couldn't just leave. I had to like change them to, you know, embody what my responsibility was. So I'm going to pause yeah. a little bond. <laughs> no, yeah, I think that's like, that sounds really, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, sometimes you just feel like you have a responsibility to a certain community. And also, I'm so glad that you said in particular, though, that like, this is the ideological roots of the Libertarian Party, whether they know it or not, or at least part of it. Like, obviously, there's other parts that have come later and like influenced yeah. it. But the original source of libertarianism as a political idea is from the left. It's not from a capitalist or yeah. authoritarian type perspective at all. Um, yeah. And, you know, Mike, you and I were talking about this during the pre-interview a little bit, but like the, the big difference between a libertarian socialist and a libertarian capitalist is whether you conceive of corporations as states especially the really big massive ones. Like, do you think of that as something that has that sort of state-like hierarchy and power over us in our day-to-day -day lives? And I mean, obviously my opinion is, uh, yeah, of course there are states where a bunch of fucking vassals and like, this is just neo-feudalism. But I am curious, like, how do people respond to that within the Libertarian Party, that idea that like corporations could be states? Well, we've actually come quite a distance towards at least illuminating the idea that corporations are creations of the state. So even though hierarchy is still pretty popular, like the logic of the quote entrepreneur as like the owner of everything that follows, no matter how many other people start to help them as they grow, that logic is still kind of lingering around. It's the prevailing, you know, but like the idea that the state's going to grant a magic piece of paper and assign every everything done in the name of that entity to a single quote owner like that is starting to unravel because like it's undeniable that that it's a little square piece of state violence that is issued by the state so a lot of right-wing libertarians are now openly declaring that corporations are you know market interventions right which is like a huge step forward because once you let go of the idea that a corporation is a naturally occurring like structure then you're brain can begin to imagine what it would look like without that. And I think what we're seeing is an increasing number of people, once their eyes are opened to that reality, that they start to lose that sort of staunch commitment to the vertical workplace. So a lot of people are now saying, yeah, cooperatives are a good idea. You know, if you want to work at one, you know, I still prefer, you know, having a boss, you know, because they they're kind of like still trying to like perform the voluntary alleged nature of that. Huh. Wait, so they're actually saying they enjoy having a boss. Well, yeah, yes. It, well, what it's a little more Let's see. In order to rationalize that, you have to think, well, it's a lot easier to join something that's already started than to start something yourself. And like, that's true, right? So they're thinking that like, rather than inventing the next Apple, some people might prefer to just go work at Apple. And I don't mean to like try to like overly apologize. I'm just sharing the window into the headspace of someone who is not totally like imagining all the possibilities, right? So there's a tendency to, when they say, I actually prefer having a boss, what they're really trying to tell you is i like how easy it is to just go apply for a job and get one and so th that's where it's at 
I think that's really funny to even think of it as something that's easy to do to get a job, especially, you know, in the COVID era. Uh, we were just on stream earlier talking about how I've started seeing uh, like advertisements on LinkedIn for volunteer positions. Right. The job market is great right now. But um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, there's certainly that narrative, right? That like you can just go wherever and you aren't stuck with a company and it gives you freedom of movement. Yeah. Right. And of course, I mean, but that is an open door, right? Because if, if that's what we're going to talk about, okay, why does that person you apply to have a unilateral decision over whether or not you get to do something you love, right? That's a pretty valid question. And I like to ask it because there's no clear answer to someone who's claiming that they want to be bossed. You know what I mean? Why would, it, in fact, I just, I got a really great- Like, frankly, I think y'all should just keep that shit in the bedroom, you know? I do want to say something on this because I do think, look, I'm an entrepreneur and I'm a self- I'm, I'm like a, uh, somebody does a lot of like self-taught things. I'm like a self-starter in that kind of way. I have all those aspects personally, but I know a lot of people don't, right? Like, and that's, that's okay, you know? And I think that there is this pressure sometimes like with like certain types of theorists that like everyone has to be a self-starter in our ideal leftist world or else you're not being ethical or something. And it's like, I don't I think some people will probably just like do grunt work for somebody too. Yeah. I don't think all of this thinking, like I actually can say like, I understand a little bit where some of this comes from. And I think that sometimes people are a little quick to say like, we can't have people like this. I think it's okay that some people are just like, yeah, I'm willing to pick up trash for eight hours. I think that's actually good. And that like, I'm yeah. so glad that those people exist, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> I think that speaks to sort of like an internalized classism that we have in the United States. This idea that the low paying jobs are undesirable, you know, that like you only end up in that job because you failed and it was your last resort, you know? And we hear that for a lot of things. Um, when in reality, like, there are people who are really, really happy just like putting their head down and doing a task. Like, People find that kind of stuff zen. And there's this idea, you know, like, oh, like no one's going to produce whatever material anymore. Like no one's going to build furniture anymore or whatever. Like that's horseshit. Like people love doing those things. They love creating things, you know. It's, sure. It's more alien to us to be in a situation where like we are frantically just repeating the same task because otherwise we die as opposed to like finding the things we're invested in. All I'm trying to say, and I think Mike could take it from here probably in an interesting direction, is that like I think actually what I'm really trying to get at is that I think this is part of what appeals about libertarian socialism as opposed to other types of socialism to me, is that I think that there is more of an acknowledgement that like we don't all have to be perfectly self-actualized human beings. I don't know. Do you feel like that's a thing? Because like I feel like that's an impression that I get from a lot of libertarian socialists is that they're just more accepting of like, yeah, we're just all people and uh, we deserve happiness, but we don't all have to be perfect to have that happiness. Yeah, sure. So I think imagining what like an actually open voluntary marketplace might look like includes sort of unpacking the kinds of stigmas that block certain people out of the marketplace. And what I mean by that is like, for instance, I lived through years of active addiction, like I'm a survivor of addiction and homelessness. And there were times in my life where I was not reliable. I could not be trusted around important decisions or, you know, 
unguarded resources, but there are activities that could have lent themselves to like my need to find resources somehow. If the sort of rigidity of like getting a job and then having to report to a boss all the time, like that barrier were reduced. And I would have been quite happy to show up and do it. So my drug of choice was meth, uh, which lends itself to like repetitive, like detailed behaviors, you know, like the classic tweaker project. Right the person repairing the toaster or whatever. Like I could have repaired toasters all day and I would have like loved to be able to show up on my own time and just do that. And like, it actually kind of circles back to ideas like restorative justice. Like what does it look like when we get rid of the drug war and we make room in society for people that are in different places in their lives? Like there are people who will do what they need to do just to get through. And it's like better to make room for them to do that. Like I, I, I think back to touch uh, back on the, the classic narrative, like, though, it's not okay to, like, funnel people into, like, forcing them into, like, clean toilets because they're in addiction. Like, that's not okay either. But, like, right. Saying, right. there's a balance there. And, and everyone in this, like, world has a place in this world if we build a world that has a place for everybody. Yeah. That's beautifully said. I think that is a deeply empathetic and kind approach to it. And I think that that is probably the single most uniting attitude among all leftists is this idea that like, no, we have enough. We can actually take care of people. It's okay. It sounds like you were sort of already in the Libertarian Party and then became leftist. Is that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So um, I have a question. This is actually from a fan who is interested to know uh, whether you might consider moving over to the Green Party, which, you know, is sort of explicitly libertarian socialist. Well, or just like what your feelings are there, basically. Yeah. So I'm going through an interesting, I do think that libertarian socialists in general, what's cool about our philosophy is that it's not really linked to like an electoral vehicle or even in the long run, electoralism at all, right? So I know there are libertarian socialists active in the DSA. I know there are ones active in the Green Party. There are now ones active in the LP. There are many who would reject electoralism whatsoever. And the cool thing is we're all like on the same quote unquote like platform or at least similar platforms, right? With shades of nuance. Would I join the Green Party? I don't know. Like I'm kind of in a space right now where I'm watching the way this is kind of like a I'll try to make this succinct, but like I'm watching the way like centrist normies constantly gravitate what they think is the safest choice and having that choice only ever make our lives worse. Like I'm starting to not be as excited about the electoral process as I used to be. So I think that is a common experience among leftists right now. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I think there's a, there's a harm reduction argument, you know, and there is a, a defensive voting argument and, and those are valid and using the platform as an educational tool. Like I think those are absolutely valid. And then also the more time passes and the more I watch majoritarian outcomes consistently failing to produce <laughs> anything resembling like an arc towards progress. <laughs> I don't know. I know I would probably be more like inclined to cross those boundaries than when I would have felt like strictly loyal to my partisan commitment to the LP. Um, because sure. 
I'm just not seeing those boundaries as important anymore. So there's that. Yeah, sort yeah. of a total process. Um, let's talk dual power and let's talk about alternatives to electoralism since you brought up sort of this disenchantment you have with the electoral process. Okay. Well, a lot of the work, the mutual aid work that I do is in the addiction recovery community because that's kind of like how I got to the point where I was even in a state of mind to do anything other than drugs myself. Um, and I still engage with, you know, I work with newcomers and I, I help with meetings and, you know, I actually sit on the board of trustees of my, my fellowship now. And I always encourage people who are doing electoral work to find a commitment to something in the mutual aid, whether it's food, not bomb, or um, harm reduction, you know, needle exchanges are a big one right now. Um, it's so, so, so important. And it's so like the logic of the welfare state is is never going to like, like we don't need a patronizing authoritarian institution that also happens to murder people in our name to like care for one another. And like that piece of the puzzle, particularly when it comes to like centrist normies who can't imagine a world where we do things any other way, um, I think political systems really are like a life or death matter. And people instinctively know that even if they're not grounded in political theory, they understand that the struggle for power and resources has an impact on their lives, right? So the question to a voter becomes, why should I trust anarchism with my life when I already know that the state takes care of us? And I think it's completely rational that like we shouldn't trust our life to something until we can see that it's going to work, right? So for those of us who have a vision of a stateless society that actually meets all of those needs, there's a responsibility to manifest that, to put action behind that and show people what that really looks like so they in turn can trust it too. And so that's right. how I think in a very pragmatic sense, you know, that is proving that it can work by taking care of people, which also creates goodwill, which also encourages people to join. And it's it's a really complete recruiting strategy, um, yes. especially compared to you know, all the like means tested shit people have to fight through, you know, every day. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. I want to ask a little bit about when you ran to be the chair of the Libertarian Party. Yes. If, what if you're interested in talking about that. Sure. Let's I, talk about I, well, I, I think uh, in particular, here's kind of like the way I want to frame it, I guess, is I've heard definitely like rumors at times about the inner workings of the Libertarian Party, but I don't have like a, I've never had like a substantive source, so I haven't really known what to believe exactly. But I have heard that like it can be kind of messy and dramatic, which is like most political organizations. But I've also heard worse, like there's some real serious corruption and things like that. And I'm just kind of curious from your perspective as someone who ran, especially as someone who ran from the left, which is, uh, you know, kind of challenging to do in an organization like that. What was the response of the structure? And how did you generally feel about like the way it was functioning on the inside? Also, is the Libertarian Party the next NRA? <laughs> no. So is it the next NRA? I'm going to say, I hope not. I think there was um, a period when the alt-right was sort of like really swelling and coming into like its peak. And I, I do think the alt-right has peaked now, although its remnants may morph into something even uglier if that's possible. But whatever, it looks like it's that's going to happen within the Republican Party. So thank goodness. But there was like a period of time where that could have been the LP. And I actually, um, I feel like for a while, the anti-fascist benefit of what we were doing, what came to the forefront, because we have ballot access in all 50 states. Like it's electorally possible for a fascist movement like the alt-right to grab power through our structure. 
Um, And it was really important to kind of like steer the party away from its right winginess. As far as corruption, I will say like what would count as corruption in a party so small would actually make like if the ruling parties were to be as relatively like small time corrupt as what we have, like the world would actually be a, a way better place. Like what counts, as, <laughs> what counts as corrupt for us was like whether the executive director should be reimbursed for her moving expenses because the chair technically gave her a verbal authorization before the executive committee meeting. Like it, it's just so small time. Yeah. That's just normal. That's right. normal political drama, in my opinion. And I just wanted, I mean, I hear a lot of these things, but a lot of these things that I hear about the Libertarian Party come from obviously untrustworthy sources. So I'm actually like glad to hear this, honestly. Sure. Now, as long as we're being real, though, I will say that there is a constellation of right-wing think tanks that kind of grew up around the movement and they operate adjacent to it. So I don't want to downplay essentially like the Koch brothers like influence, but I will say that like the idea that that's um, operating from within the party, It's not completely untrue, but it's also overblown. Like they mostly operate by flooding libertarian conventions with like free pamphlets and like copies of Atlas Shrugged and like basically like sort of like brainwashing us by making it look like right wing economics are the whole of libertarian theory. Like that has been successful because, you know, it's a grassroots movement. We don't have a lot of our own money. So people that are willing to throw money at like the educational arm, like they get a lot of traction out of that. And particularly when it comes to like the people sitting on the LNC, which is the national committee, there is a lot of pressure by donors who think that those materials are like really important. Like if we're not indoctrinating our new members to, you know, the right wing market narrative, then all is lost and the commies are going to win. And so there is a bit of like a connection there but like by and large those think tanks uh when the chips are down they consistently fund our republican opponents in districts where we do have candidates and they consistently end up aligning politically with conservative politicians rather than libertarian ones like if they wanted us to actually win they have the money and the power to make that happen and that isn't happening so i think there's more of like a controlled opposition and to the degree that there are entrenched sort of sycophants on the, on the lnc i think they're mostly just useful idiots Yeah, there's a very similar relationship in uh, DSA to the Democratic Party. And honestly, frankly, I find it extremely comforting that it's not just us and that this is actually (laughs) something that like other orgs are doing and that, you know, this is just people and no, I can't run away from it by starting a new org. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, wait, this is very out there in a way but i want to pitch an idea to you what if we all work together to raise money to have conquest of bread at libertarian conventions well incredible (laughs) i think that would be well received in a way it probably had not been for a long time you know and it's funny because so i told you the story earlier about how like i had my own sort of left-wing awakening 
And it started right. to change my language. And I started to like others were picking up. It was almost like, you know, the leftist version of dog whistling. I started noticing other people responded to that language and I would hear it echoed back. And, and there started to be like a critical mass that was forming. It took about four years between like all of that happening and, and to where we got to where a libertarian socialist caucus became like self-aware. Oh, what was the point of that story? Oh, I actually, I feel this was one of my most out of touch moments because I thought I got the idea that it was just an open secret that there were lib socks in the party, but we were just kind of like, you know, going along to get along. Like I thought the right wing of the party, which is the, the vast majority of it, like I thought they knew we were there. So finally, when we, we reached critical mass and a caucus formed and everyone was losing their mind, actually, do I want to tell this story? Well, it's this quick book. Oh, yeah, <laughs> it's a quick one. There was this one moment where like one of the members and he was on the LNC at the time. He's not anymore, but uh, we were in a thread and I remember he said to me, I know that your libs suck like with this weird ominous threat. And I thought, so like, am I supposed to be threatened? Like you're going to expose me? Like I thought people knew. And so, and this was right on the cusp of like when the caucus started happening, because I was like thinking, okay, I guess if the shoe fits, like, I don't know. Like, I didn't know that that was like, you could destroy someone by outing them as a lip sock. So like, fuck that. I'm going to like, <laughs> I, I, I <laughs> dare you to destroy me. Like the, the, let me be clear. Like the queer caucus is like, probably the most powerful caucus in the party. And the reason why I think partly is because back in the seventies, the people that started it were, you know, a combination of hippies and, you know, people, Republicans that want to smoke pot and couldn't stand Richard Nixon. And, you know, my point is there were a lot more bohemians and counterculture back then. And that early commitment to queer liberation was very fresh and new then. And like the party was proud of that, at least it's cosmopolitan wing. And so all through those like those right wing years, there was like a sense of pride that like we were ahead of the ball, far ahead of the Democrats and Republicans. And like they started to feel that being lost and they didn't know how to re reclaim it. And then the queer caucus came along and we have the hearts and minds even of the right wing of the party is my point. So I'm not saying I was untouchable, but I had a kind of like, I had the clout to like smash that through and come out of the lip sock and survive it is my point. Right, right. Yeah. You had enough esteem that people took it seriously and considered it because they found out it was what you believe. Yes. Which is like the truest kind of power, I think. Like in the most like raw and direct state, it's people respecting you enough to take your opinion seriously. You talked a lot uh, at the beginning there, or talked a little bit at the beginning there about how you were hearing certain kinds of language coming up in the Libertarian Party that were sort of creating these narratives about libertarianism and socialism and uh, sort of how that was integrating with the right and the alt-right. Uh, what sort of language was that? And what have you done with that language now that you have it? Wow, that's a big question. So one of the things... I refer to this as like the smoking gun and I, I keep this link handy and I post it all the time. But like in 1990, there was this article that Lou Rockwell wrote. It was published in the Liberty magazine and it was called for a new paleo libertarianism. And what they were doing is they saw an opportunity. So what was happening is that the mainstream right, the electoral right was losing the culture war. And it's sort of like the white nationalists and the, the, the really staunch Christian conservatives, they were starting to panic and it was fracturing the right. This was before they sort of reclaimed a moral majority narrative in the later 90s. But in the early 90s, it was all cracking up. So Lou Rockwell saw this opportunity to craft like a, a, a paleo narrative 
narrative out of this lingering idea that classical liberalism gave us the constitution and therefore constitutional conservatism counts as libertarianism. And if we weave a narrative around that, then we can kind of scoop these right-wing voters that are feeling abandoned by the GOP and our party can grow. And so he wrote this like really disgusting article. And if you read this article, you're going to You'll, and I'll, if I don't remember, let me grab a, a sticky. I'll send you the link. And if I don't remember, remind me so you can put it in the show notes because I think every libertarian should have their nose rubbed in this as often as possible because you'll see the seeds of the alt-right in this article. So Rothbard, Paul, Ron Paul, Lou Rockwell, those people get to own Donald Trump. That is his fault because what became the alt-right and eventually gave Donald Trump power is this. And this is how we wind up with like David Duke endorsing libertarian candidates. And I get that like they wanted to grow the party, but like that is a disgusting way to try to do that. And so that was the first thing. When I found that article and started like spreading it around and making people read it, that by itself opened up a lot of eyes. And there you start to be able to hear in particular narratives like the one where business owners get to like where, you know, cake bigots or some somebody we should all cry for because they got their business taken away because they doxed a lesbian couple, right? Like the business owners have some sort of inherent right to like control the gender of everyone that walks through their door. That free speech <laughs> is not just like part of the contract between citizen and state in the United States, but some kind of weird, like moral and ethical calling where you never have anybody face any consequences for anything they say. Right. So like, it, and it's right. very duplicitous, right? Because they'll tell you the market's going to fix that. But if you actually try to weaponize the boycott, <laughs> um, suddenly you've interfered with, you know, the market. Right. Right. Yeah, the market's fixing it until like we actually have like, you know, queer women of color, women winning sci-fi awards and then things are wrong. Right. Things are very wrong, right, you know, right. and it's just like, no, like this is the market is deciding and we want this shit like get real. Uh, and <laughs> it's just <laughs> yeah, extremely, extremely. It's this it's unique kind of fragility that I have only seen like in that particular demographic of just like any change at all to the conversation around like gender or race or class or power generally is somehow like a personal attack on them, right. you know, that they have to defend against. Right. And when you get down to the bottom of these free speech arguments, they're liars anyway because they're asking for free speech to oppress you where's my free speech to be queer as shit go fuck exactly. yourself exactly right <laughs> like like what there's always an unspoken there's always an unspoken moral hierarchy when these people are talking about this stuff they pretend like they're being neutral but in their mind they have that unspoken moral hierarchy and they're getting ready to enforce it so all that shit right is bullshit. right another one that was really and this one's kind of infuriating it's where like certain like plural adjectives and nouns that they don't like are collectivism, right? So like if you're doing Black Lives Matter or you're doing, you know, if you're trying to deconstruct the gender binary or whatever it is, right? That's collectivism. And like, that was a really difficult one to, uh, to because we, at the time we had, you know, liberal politicians um, who were, how do I put it? They're not really the best friends of marginalized people. They're often just trying to justify expanding state power in our names, right? 
And so what I mean by that is like expanding the police state in the name of hate crimes legislation, right? So like that's really going on. Like, so from the Oh yeah. Like time. it's real. Like, so the libertarian point of view is like, no, wait, stop. We don't want more police state. Like you don't have to do that. Okay. But the right wing narrative is like, that's collectivism and it's the gay agenda and it's coming from the gays when like, it's actually coming from the democratic politicians who are exploiting gay narratives for their exploiting gender and sex minority narratives for their, their own gains. So um, like one of the ways we have combated that is by simply bringing like the libsoc critique of liberal identity politics to the forefront. I like saying it's okay to not want, you know, a, a patronizing authoritarian solution to a problem, but that problem still exists and it needs a solution rather than the right wing, which is like, I'm going to hand wave that away because they think both the problem and the solution are, you know, made up. Yeah. Wow. You know, it's not, it's not <laughs> until I try to explain what all we've been through that I realize like what a maddening, like, the sheer volume of like the intellectual labor that has had to take place to get where we are now. Absolutely. But I mean, I think yeah. a lot of us who are left-wing organizers of some kind feel that in terms of, I mean, Thomas Sankara, I'm going to butcher this quote because I don't have it in front of me, but he famously said, you know, the revolutionary can never get tired of explaining. Yeah. And like, I think, uh, uh, you know, like we are seeing a lot of growth of the left, but there is also like a little bit of like a rubber band catch up of those of us who have been doing the explaining and the organizing for a long time. Sometimes you feel it like, whoo, yeah, sure is, sure is a thing. Right. Um, but uh, as I said, the left is growing and that's exciting. And on that subject, we've talked about like a lot of kind of the ups and downs of how the Libertarian Party got where it, it, it is, how it, you got where you are. Let's talk about the future. Let's talk about some hope. So let's talk about what do you think is like the brightest hope for the Libertarian Party right now? What do you think is like the best future that the Libertarian Party could have? What factors do you think might like actually make that possible and how could people like maybe get involved if they're like on the fence like maybe i want to get involved with a third party maybe i want to be involved with the libertarian party but they are a leftist and they don't understand uh exactly how to do this or what can be done let's hear your brightest future <laughs> well one really bright glimmer of hope that i think serves as a litmus test for exactly how far we had come and i want to be clear just two years ago the libsoc caucus only started in 2017 so it's only been around for really two and a half years almost three now. And two years ago, there was a motion by the LNC that would have, without getting into like all of the minutiae, essentially it would have made it impossible for us to exist in the party and claim to be libertarian. Um, and that resolution failed. And essentially that would, in retrospect, we call it the purge resolution, even though it didn't present itself as a purge, it was supposedly just claiming what the platform said. Anyway, I digress. Two years later, we are so normalized in this party that the idea of kicking us out is laughable. And Vermin Supreme came within not very many percentage points away from becoming presidential nominee. Yeah. That is incredible progress. So... Um, I think it speaks to the idea that like in the bottom of the heart of someone who like is actually gravitating towards a libertarian, a truly a world set truly free, like the seeds of that intellectual tradition are there. And when we introduce them to the full like scope of it and this rich intellectual tradition that exists, they love it. They love it. So progress is both more rapid, but also sometimes still excruciatingly slow and exhausting as well. 
So my point with all that is like we constantly are needing reinforcements because activist burnout is a thing in any movement, particularly in this one where we are surrounded. I mean, even I go through waves of where I'm like, I just can't be a target of this much hate anymore. And I go through cycles and like being able to have fresh people in the fight at all times is like really helpful. And also, if can you imagine if like Vermin Supreme had been our nominee right now, we would have had a person who specializes in de-escalation tactics out on the streets during all of these riots. And it would have been beautiful. Right. It would have been beautiful, but we didn't have the delegates. We just, we don't have the numbers yet. So this work isn't for everyone because you need the patience and like the compassion to see the humanity in someone who's using really cringy language to express themselves. But we have this idea of bottom unity, which is the idea that anti-authoritarians across the entire bottom half of that political compass should be working together to defeat the top half. And that has sort of, that has been really one of the best ways to sort of package what we're doing because it turns right-wing people who they'll be like, you know, I'll fight to the death for your right to say it, right? Like they'll, suddenly they realize like we have more in common than we have differently and they'll defend us even if they don't like really agree with us yet or even if they staunchly disagree, but they're on board with the idea of working together. So it has been kind of a like a bit of sort of rhetorical judo, I guess, to get people to defend us, even though they don't agree with us, because the concept of bottom unity itself is really exciting. And like, I do think it's really exciting, like that idea of us all uniting against the systems that are actually causing human lives to end early every day, like that really excites me. So if that excites you too, the Libertarian Socialist Caucus could really, 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 really use more support and on that subject i want to just ask you really to like put it a bit on like a number here because i tell people a lot that like the politics around them is probably controlled by less people than they think in most cases now it's different if you live in like new york city right like then you live in like the the midst of a giant political machine right. Okay, but a lot of people in this country, they live in a, 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 some small town in Indiana or something, right? And like the Democratic Party of their county is probably like four people. You you start looking at third parties and it might be like one person in some yeah. cases, right? So when we're talking about like making this shift in the Libertarian Party, would you be willing to, you don't have to necessarily give like hard numbers, obviously, but would you be willing to give people an idea of really like how little feet on the ground it would take to make that switch where it's like, okay, the Libsoc caucus is no longer like a loud minority. We are the majority. Sure. Well, so like I'll use my state as an example. I live in Arizona and um, we have, oh, I never remember. Is it 13 or 15? And I always guess the wrong one, but we have either 13 or 15 counties in our state and only four of those counties have active affiliates. So depending on whether it's 15 or 13, that means there's nine or 11 counties where one person can just step forward and say, I'd like to start a county affiliate and boom, you are, you know, you're the political boss of that county. Now you do need a few friends because you have to like, obviously the state requires, speaking of the state and intervening and in how people structure their organizations, um, you're going to be required to have a chair and a treasurer at least. Um, you're also going to be required to have bylaws. And once you start writing bylaws, typically you need a secretary. And of course, there's always going to end up being a vice chair, like, because it's just standard how people do things and you know if you're a libsock though starting it with other libsock friends um within the boundaries of what um the state requires you can set something up very horizontal and like 
in a broader sense, even the right wing of the party is committed to like bottom upness and power from the bottom. This idea of like affiliate autonomy is really super important. And everyone defends that even like, I mean, you can imagine why the right wingers too, like it's kind of like a state's rights narrative, really, if you want to look at it in its like most grossest manifestation, the idea that political power comes from below and that the central committee should not be bossing us, but rather serving us. Right. So my point is all of the states like around the nation are in a similar like they don't have all of their counties are not organized. And once you're establishing county leadership, it is not hard to become a state party officer. And once you have that kind of credibility established and people know that you can be trusted and that your narrative is a libertarian one, we do have affiliates, especially in Pennsylvania and Michigan, where they have happened to have a more there's just happens to be whatever reason, more lip socks emerge there and they are our entire county affiliates and we don't hold a state party what well, i hate to use language like that because it's vertical we're not trying to like we're not trying to like steal the hierarchy like it's not a hostile takeover like that or anything like that but with that said you know it is nice to sometimes have a, ma- a majority on a board so there's also that but yeah. we don't have a majority on any of the state boards but we do have majorities at on some county affiliates and it's just back to your point it's just not that hard to show up and be the ones controlling the narrative. And some of those affiliates are putting out really, really, really beautiful releases and those are getting, you know, published in the media. And so that kind of a platform is not easy to get any other way. Yeah, I routinely struggle with sort of trying to reconcile my distaste for these hierarchies with the need for any kind of infrastructure, you know, and can we create true grassroots infrastructure without like starting with somebody's existing infrastructure? And like, how do we even do that? Like they're just huge questions for like, how do we actually dismantle capitalism? Right. I was also wondering, given that you have been winning over the libertarian party, and I would assume by extension of that kind of winning over members of the alt-right, like, what are you saying to them? What do we say to deprogram people? I'm not sure there's a single answer, but there are a few sort of litmus test issues. So where are they at on border security? If they're trying to say, oh, the border is just like a front door, therefore private property because you shut your door, right? That is not a bottom right narrative. That is a top right narrative. And that is not libertarian. So first I would say um, your unity is not uniformity. We can't have diversity of thought and tactics, but there is a line between what counts as a world set free and what does not. And that issue is one of the ones where you can identify who you're talking to. You don't have to align yourself or even pretend that that person is an ally at this time. Another good litmus test is transgender issues. If the person believes that somehow the gender of the people they trade with has become their property because they walked through the front door of the business, that person is not currently an ally of a world set free and we don't have to pretend that they are. So what is helpful about, and I don't mean it, how do I put it? I, I struggle to balance this with like the justice commitment to restoration and redemption. Like no one is disposable. Like we don't abandon them to fascism and be like, haha, that's what you get. Like that's not okay either. But like with that said, I guess back to pragmatism, like politics is a numbers game. 
And I would rather have a majority of people who actually want to reduce border violence and the deportation state and who actually want to reduce the controls over the gender binary that anyway, um, if I can, if I have to draw a line and where some people are in and some are out, then that can be helpful. Driving a wedge is my point. So illuminating that wedge so you can see who's on which side of it tends to get, I call them cosmopolitan end caps. These are pro-trans, pro-sense worker, pro-migrant. If you can get them to be like, hey, they're not with me, then you also strengthen their own commitment to holding their own spaces accountable, right? So we go from this paleo narrative where like, oh, we're going to work with any right winger that will work with us to wait a minute, we're not going to work with people that don't believe transgender people are humans, right? And getting the party to just hold itself accountable has been huge. And we are now seeing these cosmopolitan end caps and these classical liberal moderates who are taking firmer stands than they ever did before. And what that has, the effect of that is that like it causes the person to dig in and examine their rhetoric and find like a stronger framework to work from. And that tends to lead, in my experience, to an awakening that is more anti-authoritarian and leads to some of the other ideas that we hope they discover. Thank you. Um, I actually hadn't heard most of those yet. So I now have new insights that I did not before. This has been great. Um, yeah, Mike, it has been such a pleasure. Thank you for being here with us today. Do you have anything you would like to boost or, you know, tell everybody about and send them over to you? And at the very least, where can we find you on Twitter? Um, you can find me on Twitter at Mikester, M-I-K-E-S-T-E-R. I'm on there. Or if you want to find my Facebook page, just Facebook search Mike Shipley Anarchist. I'm on there as well. Of course, if you're coming from a left-wing history and you want to um, get involved, you're definitely going to want to be around others who think like you because if you're just surrounded by right-wingers, it's just it's hard and isolating and gross. And that will possibly be your experience if you do start attending local affiliate meetings and especially in bigger cities where there's already an active population, you'll want to know where your comrades are, at least online. So I say all that because getting in touch with the Libertarian Socialist Caucus will help you not feel so alone if you decide to start doing that local organizing work. And you can find us on Facebook by just searching Libertarian Socialist Caucus of the Libertarian Party. We have a page, we have a discussion group, and if you want to become a full member, then we also have a full members group. And I will plug one more project, which is the Povertarians. Basically, the Povertarians is about um, making it possible for working class libertarians to attend the national conventions, because obviously you can't show up and be a delegate and vote if you can't afford to be there. So the Povertarian Caucus raises money. Um, we fund a suite at the convention. So if you can just get there, you at least know you've got a room to crash in. If nothing else, um, we keep food in that suite so that, you know, if you don't have any other resources, you could at least eat because we need votes on the floor to make this possible. So if you don't want to get involved in the party, but you just like to make it possible for others to do this work, then sending money on PayPal to povertarians at gmail.com would be so, 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 so helpful because these things are not cheap. Absolutely. And all of that will be in the show notes. Of course, Mike Shipley, thank you so much for joining us today for just an absolutely very interesting and fun and thoughtful conversation. We really appreciate you taking the time. Yay. Thank you too. And we appreciate all of you out there for listening. Of course, as always, we are not safe for wonks. I'm Kennedy Cooper. You can find me on Twitter at Kennedy T. Cooper. 
I'm Rachel Kahn. You can find me on Twitter at ReachRachelKahn. And you can find the show at NSF Wonks on Twitter. There's always something interesting going on over there, including our daily live streams Monday to Friday at 4 Eastern. Also, head on over to patreon.com slash not safe if you want to support a different kind of bottom-up organization. This podcast, uh, which is supported just pretty much exclusively by viewers like you and our own scant pocketbooks when that isn't quite enough. So we appreciate all of you out there taking the time to check that out. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye.